Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjus Duma, the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana Fiverr Cancer Institute and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. ESMO 2021 just happened a few weeks ago. This is the second ESMO to be virtual since the pandemic started in 2020. But this time, it was a hybrid model in which some presenters were in person during the meeting and a lot of us were virtually attending. Insighting and innovative research was presented on this digital platform that shared views and research across the globe, and it has live interactive Q&A sessions. Today, we have two very special guests as we discuss the highlights of ESMO 2021. We have Dr. Solange Peters, the current ESMO president, chair of medical oncology and professor of oncology at Lausanne University in Switzerland. Hello, Solange. Hi, Najin. How are you? All good. And very, very happy that you're here with us. Happy we to be also, there. <laughs> we also have Dr. Pasi Genet, Director of the Law Center for Thoracic Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is one of the co- scientific co-chairs of ESMO 2021. Hello, Pasi. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. So we are going to be referring each other by first name as we know each other and we're friends. And this is an informal conversation about a great meeting. First, congratulations on a very successful meeting. The meeting was scheduled to take place in Paris, France, but due to the ongoing pandemic, it needed to be switched to this kind of hybrid model. So Solange, when do you realize the meeting was going to be this hybrid virtual meeting? Well. I must say, from the beginning of my presidency of ESMO, which was uh, early 2020, I had to go from one resilience process to the other one, right? Uh, And I think the thing I've done the most was cancelling meetings or transforming them into virtual formats. So for Paris, it was very due to us, Passy, myself, uh, and Tony, to try to make our best to still have delegates, but on the other hand, if not, to have, if possible, all speakers on site. The idea was to really recreate the debate, the interactivity, having people standing, seeing the shoes, you know what I mean, something about the live format. But we realized probably during the summertime that it would only be speakers, of course, and it would only be some of them due to some travel bans, institutional travel bans or geographical travel bans. But at the end, we were close to between 250 and 300 people on site, lot of young, lots of young oncologists. So really very interactive and pleasant. I would say this format is a good one because it can be adapted to the uh, growing ability we have to travel. So for example, for the SMOIO, we'll do the same, but start to allow for delegates to come. And then you can imagine next year, we'll be again in Paris, then maybe 90 pe- 90% of the speakers and the delegate will be on side, or maybe 50, maybe 60. It can really be adjusted to what can happen in the future, right? So it was a resilient one, again, but I found it successful in making the best out of the COVID pandemic, right? And I do have to confess, I really like to see you and Pasi sitting in the chairs. It felt like a little bit of normal was coming back instead of just, you know, a big person in a pre-recorded talk. 
So I think it was easier to be part of the meeting with the hybrid model in which some of the presenters were around. Because I think at this point, a lot of us have been in a lot of virtual meetings and it can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I guess well, we were very pleased also to be there. But I think the reason why we had to choose always between hybrid and presential is that nobody realized that doing it hybrid this way, meaning that some are on site, some are at home watching virtually, makes the whole concept extremely complex. It's like a studio, a TV studio, a TV show for every single kind of session. So for the staff, it's twice more complex than having presential or or virtual, right? And I must say in terms of financial components, it's probably also twice more expensive than any of the, I would say, classical ways to move. But I think that's probably the most lively format we can adopt for maybe the next nine to 12 months. And, and I will say, we, we didn't have too many technical glitches either. I think everything uh, everything worked out very well and going back and forth between recorded talks and live talks, um, you know, I think it all worked out very well in the end and it was nice to have a, some audience, some discussion, uh, felt a little bit normal to be able to do that. So I, I thought it came off very well. Mm-hmm. And this is a little bit off the script, but do you too felt a little bit that you were hosting a talk show when you were in the chairs, just like inviting people to talk and do all of that? So a little bit. I don't know, Pasi, what you felt, but when we had this rehearsal for the opening ceremony, right? For the first time, it sounded or it looked a little bit like a talk show, right? Something we are not very good in, right? It's not really our best skin. So I felt a little bit, it was fun. We had fun uh, from each other, right? What do you think, Basi? Yeah, it was great. It definitely had the talk show feel to it. You know, of course, you can't see the tens of thousands of people on the other end who are actually watching you, but uh, it was great. It was great. Well, thank you for sharing those insights with us. And Pasi, regarding this scientific planning, it takes months, you know, including the Asterix submission, the Asterix review. The anything needed to change? regarding the scientific planning when everything went to this hybrid model? Well, the, the, of course, we did a lot of uh, meeting planning on, uh, on Zoom and on phone calls to be prepared like we would always. In terms of the scientific program, we pre-recorded all the talks. And then if the presenter was on site, the presenter would actually then present it live as opposed to the pre-recording. But we needed to have the pre-recording as a backup in case there were any last-minute changes due to travel or other restrictions just to be prepared. So we were sort of doubly prepared in many instances. And, and as I said, I think technically things went very well. Well, thank you for sharing with that. We, we asked, I really like the idea of having the backup recording because currently traveling, flights are getting canceled more than often and all those issues. So as you were days before the event or in during the event, Solange and Pasi, do you experience any surprises? That came out and they were obviously unexpected. Probably one that's uh, the, the worst and it's probably the, the most difficult news we got to kind of accept with, uh, with Passy was the, the fact, you know, we are kind of a, a trio with um, Passy and Tony, right? We always try to do everything together. And one week or two weeks before, maybe I exaggerate, but I think it's something like that before the meeting, we got to know that Tony could not join. Because not because of traveling, but just because of quarantine, he had to quarantine more than two weeks going back to Hong Kong, something that he could really not do. So basically, that was the worst surprise for me. On the ESMO side, we did pre-record and we did tape all the talks, even the ones from the people who were telling us, I'm sure I will come. 
So we protected ourselves from any bad surprise because everything could have been done purely virtually. So I think logistically not, but the absence of Tony was a heartfelt, right? Yeah, I would agree with Solange on that. That was a surprise and a disappointment. Well, I'm glad that you were able to adapt to this and the three of you in a way were together virtually. Now we're going to move just to talk about the wonderful science that was presented, particularly to thoracic oncology at ESMO 2021. We're going to start with the presentation by dear friend, Dr. Enriqueta Felipe. She presented additional information about iMPower 010 or iMPower 10, a phase three trial evaluating atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting for patients with stage 1B to 3A no small cell lung cancer. The treatment with the adjuvant atezolizumab versus best supportive care resulted in improved disease-free survival and time to local, regional, and distal relax for the patients with stage 2 to 3A. And, and this cohort included some patients with EGFR and ALF mutations and translocations. So in those with PD-1 expression of 1% or higher, the median time to any relax was 17.6 months and the atezolizumab arm versus 10.9 months with best supportive care. Lastly, so now the updated data presented by Dr. Philippe shows similar patterns of relax between both study arms. Pasi, what do you think about the future of atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting, knowing also the results from Checkmate A16 that included another immune checkpoint inhibitor in the early stage disease setting? Well, I think the updated data was uh, interesting, especially in the uh, biomarker population, not just the greater than 1%, but it was further broken down to greater than 50% and in patients between 1% and 49%. And it was pretty clear from the data that the significant benefit of adjuvant atezolizumab is really in the patients with the greater than 50% PDL1. And I think we'll need to continue to see more data on uh, this study and follow up to, to see kind of how this shakes out in the future. And similarly, of course, as you mentioned, uh, the chemo IO in the neoadjuvant setting versus chemo has had a significant impact on uh, pathologic response and complete pathologic response, which we saw at AACR. We haven't seen the impact yet on disease-free survival, and we are sort of eagerly awaiting that. But I do think that there will be a role for immune checkpoint inhibition in the adjuvant and in the neoadjuvant setting. I think the devil's in the details as to will that be a role for everybody, or will it only be in the greater than 50% PDL one population or some other biomarker-associated population, but I do think there will continue to be a role. And, you know, to comment on that, we have seen immune checkpoint inhibitors since 2015, you know, coming in the natural history of the process with second line, first line, and now we're seeing it in very early stages, and they're here to stay in the treatment for lung cancer. So now we're going to talk about the results of Destiny Lung's one, this is a study that evaluated the efficacy and safety of a HER2 antibody drug conjugate, trastuzumab, durastecan in patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and HER2 mutations. This drug demonstrated robust and durable activity in this population with a manageable safety profile. Overall response rate of 55% and with around 54% partial responses. Disease control rate was seen over 92%, we have median duration or response of 9.3 months and a median progression-free survival of 8.2 months. The efficacy was consistent across all subgroups, including patients that were treated with HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitors 
and we see in S metastasis. Treatment-related adverse events occurring around 97% of patients, and we saw some cases of drug-related intertitial lung disease. The studies are extremely compelling, and we continue to learn about more targets, and lung cancer continues to become a more heterogeneous disease. Lung cancer can no longer be defined as one disease. So Solange, as a medical oncologist, what was your reaction to these data? And are you ready to incorporate this in your practice? Yeah, thanks a lot. The answer is clearly yes, in terms of incorporating it into my practice. But more than that, I think this is a trial which was performed not as a frontline strategy, but in patients pre-treated. And as you have said, without really discriminants telling that some patients should not receive cistrastuzumab deruxtecan with, to me, uh, an absolutely amazing PFS of 8 plus and median OS of 17 plus months, which was really something like unexpected. More than that, 55% response rate in that specific clinical scenario means to me a positioning in frontline. Remember, this patient with her two mutated are usually mutations, are usually never smokers, where you can really debate forever the role of IO, but if any, it might be very modest. So basically, this is what you have to compare with chemo, platinum-based chemotherapy. So I would prefer from far to use it instead of platinum-based chemotherapy if it was just my opinion. So for me, it has reached the, I would say, achievements, which might be conditioning of frontline decision-making in for these patients, right? Second thing, which quite important, is the fact that this molecule at the CMSMO meeting, maybe it's not our field, but has shown amazing data compared to a very similar drug, which is TDM1, in breast cancer. Remember this trial with a p-value with a number of zeros that you can hardly count, meaning really that there's something as how these drugs are engineered from the antibody, which is almost the same, if not the same as a TDM1, but from the antibody itself to the payload, the linker, and uh, what we say the bystander effect, which makes this new molecule at the top of what can be engineered in uh, antibody drug conjugate. It means some toxicity. There were two ILD-related deaths, and I think we need to know more how to prevent, how to follow up, how to make sure that we manage optimally this toxicity at the long level, because it's, to me, the only limiting factor with this new generation of antibody drug conjugate is the education around the potential inflammatory lung disease. But apart from that, it's very promising. We will uh, use it as soon as we can, probably initially in pre-treated patients for regulatory reasons, but again, I would be happy to use it from time. And I continue to be amazed, like every time we have a presentation about how do you treat lung cancer, for example, for trainees, in a few months, it needs to be updated because we're having more and more drugs for our patients. And I think seeing progress, despite the ongoing pandemic, brings hope to many thoracic oncologists. We also saw the results for the BOYS study. The BOYS study evaluated in vaccination against COVID-19 in patients with cancer. And it's important that we mention this as the initial studies from vaccinations for vaccines did not include patients with, with cancer. The study collected information about immune responses, adverse events after vaccination with the Moderna vaccine, revealing that individuals with cancer have an appropriate protected immune response to vaccination without experiencing any more side effects compared to the general population. Adequate levels of antibodies to the virus in the blood were found in 84% of patients with cancer receiving chemotherapy, 89% of patients receiving chemoimmunotherapy combinations, and 93% of patients with immunotherapy alone. 
Pasi, how do you see these results we affect the vaccination patterns in patients with cancer? Any additional thoughts about this study and other studies involving vaccination against COVID-19? Well, it was certainly encouraging to see. And I think, you know, as you know, we've started to do booster vaccinations uh, for uh, all of our cancer patients. And many of our patients have opted to, uh, to do that. And, you know, cancer clearly is a risk factor for uh, dealing with COVID if you get infected with COVID. So taking precautions, being effectively vaccinated, doing the booster, I think are all important uh, ways to mitigate against that. And I think the, part, the importance of this study is that it has helped us as oncologists to understand a little bit more. I do remember at the beginning of when we started vaccinating patients, it was unclear if we, you know, patients with immunotherapy, we have a response of how patients with chemotherapy will do. And I think as we continue to learn, this generates more confidence in our patients and healthcare providers that vaccination is essential and the booster for our patients with cancer is particularly patients with lung cancer. What was very interesting was to see how much, I would say, successive vaccinations do increase at least the antibody titers and specifically also the neutralizing antibody titers. Just meaning that when we hesitate, hesitated in the past to provide the vaccine, it was wrong. All cancer patients, regardless and respective of treatment, should receive the vaccine. But more than that, they should be prioritized for the third dose, right? Because probably they will show an additional increase in the antibody titer, but more than that, they are the victims of COVID, right? So I think there's something about a new call we should make all together to have a priority for our patients for this third shot, right? Because it's far from being adopted in many countries, particularly in Europe. I absolutely agree. And that's just really important. I think many of our patients with cancer had remained in their house secluded for over a year and a half. While there's still restrictions across the globe, I think advocating for them to get the vaccine, we open some of these doors for them to enjoy. Some of them may have limited time outside of their houses. Moving forward a little bit, I think during the presidential address and further, we continue to see how precision medicine is essential for the treatment of lung cancer. As we talk about new approvals and new drugs, this is part of lung cancer. Precision medicine is part of lung cancer treatment. And ESMO is an international meeting. So Solange, as a global leader in oncology, what are some of the challenges that we will continue to face when trying to bring precision oncology to low middle income countries? And how is ESMO working with these nations outside of Europe? Well, the challenges are, are multiple. And as you probably, we all have seen and we knew that every crisis, particularly an economic crisis like the one which will follow the COVID, will trigger some more inequalities, right? So everything we've been observing before the COVID time, meaning this imbalances in accessibility to innovation and to pressing oncology in some countries, will be probably worsened uh, after, after the COVID time. So, of course, there are many places and things we can do. First of all is to try to understand better. What are the needs in each country, region, part of the world? Which I must say probably we still underestimate and, and inaccurately evaluate. Uh, we work hand, by, hand in hand with WHO to try to uh, build together the essential medicine list called EML every year. To try to really put on this list what is the must of the must, right? What do you need? And this year we did it. You have to produce 120 pages for every drug. 
And we produce 120 pages for the pembrolizumab, which now is needed in many diseases, right? But it was rejected because of the cost. So it's still interesting to see that science cannot drive accessibility, even if it's led by WHO at an international level and so on. So there's something to do, and that's a hard work, about considering drug pricing and drug reimbursement. And in some countries, I remember my old days in HIV when I was first educated, in some countries it might be forced by some regulatory authorization, like, for example, this, uh, I would say, post or, or beyond patent uh, compulsory licensing that we did for HIV drug in the past. It might be at some point that local production might drive accessibility in some countries, not all, of course, not ours, of course, but some countries. Still, this being said, there are lots of inequalities where we live that we should also deal with and work for, I would say, the security of having all people and cancer patients in our environment to have an access to the compound. And I think even locally, there's lots of politics to do, right? Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's a long road, but we have to assure that, you know, progress reach hopefully everyone in the globe. As we are almost coming to the end, Pasi, there were any other presentations at ESMO 2021 that particularly caught your eye? Well, there are a couple in the, in the uh, thoracic field. One was the addition of uh, bevacizumab to frontline osimertinib. And there's been a lot of interest of adding anti-angiogenic agents to EGFR inhibitors. And many of the studies using older generation inhibitors like erlotinib have been positive for PFS. And there was one at ESMO as well. But all of the osimertinib ones have been negative. And there was a frontline one in, at ESMO that was negative. And there were subsequent publications in the second line from a Japanese group, as well as from the ETOP group that have a negative. So it's interesting to see that there are these differences in anti-angiogenesis agents when, depending on what EGFR inhibitor is used. And the second I'll mention just in the, in the theme of antibody drug conjugates, there was a presentation on using the trope 2 antibody drug conjugate DS1062A in patients who have failed genotype-directed therapy. And there was definitely activity of that. And I think Again, opens up a new potential therapeutic approach for our genotype-directed patients who are treated with genotype-directed therapy who have progressed on those treatments and are looking for new options. So, so definitely some movement in that space as well. And we look forward to those studies. Thank you. And Solange, any other presentation at ESMO 2021 that also you would like to highlight? Yeah, probably two also. And, and my, my topic is probably more a bit more immunotherapy. So I think there was very, uh, once immunotherapy has reached now the curative intent, at least context and scenario, I really love this exploratory phase two trial, open label phase two, which is trying to compete with the Pacific trial after radio chemotherapy in stage three, not more cell and cancer in operable stage three, where a new combination of Durvalumab, so Durvalumab with Monalizumab or Durvalumab with Oclequlumab, I let you go through the mechanism of action, basically. They attack the microenvironment, the inhibitory microenvironment of the tumor, given after uh, chemoradiation. We're showing, and it's a decently sized trial with 60 patients in each arm, quite an amazing improvement in response rate and in PFS. Not that it is a phase three, but I think the difference is high enough to go for phase three with both combinations, but just telling that we are at the very early days of immunotherapy, right? A bit like when we started with chemo. We just start to discover how we could potentially make the best out of the compounds we have. And this course trial is the proof that we have hope to do way better than what we have been showing as evidence for early disease, but also probably for advanced disease in the future. 
And then maybe going beyond lung cancer, we have been showing again, because it's again the role of epinivo in mesothelioma, remember epilodos, but what was interesting was that attempts to define biomarkers or subgroups of patients who would benefit more or less from uh, this uh, combination of immunotherapy with uh, the conclusion that basically all subgroups are benefiting and we are always very poor in defining biomarkers. We couldn't really identify your usual biomarkers, pdl one TMB or the famous LEP, the Long Immune Prognostic Index. None of them were showing any predictive ability. Again, and like we recently have shown in small cell, it's around the gene inflammatory signature, so this RNA expression measurement of specific immune-related genes that might be the way to identify patients benefiting from nivoepine mesothelioma. It's absolutely exploratory, but I like this close relationship, which was done also with the most recent data in, in small cell, for example, where it looks also that immune gene signature in Empower 133 might be the only way to identify some patients, right? So interesting, I would say, biomarker to be follow up, but more than that, establishing NIVO-EP as frontline therapy in all mesothelioma patients. And maybe last but not least, some signal for efficacy in thymic carcinoma and thymoma type C of nivolumab in our EORTC top trial NIVO team, but only signal for efficacy. And we will move with NIVO-EP there. I think it's still not establishing immunotherapy in that disease, which uh, unfortunately might also lead for to a lot of side effects because of the nature of thymic malignancies, right? But some signal for efficacy there. Thank you for sharing that. And I love the combination of two of you. We have the target therapy presentations that called passive size, and then we have the immunotherapy to try to, you know, come to a complete update. A question for the two of you. You are already planning for ESMO 2022, I'm guessing. Which lessons do you learn from this current meeting that will be helpful for next year? Solange. So for next year, well, I don't know how it's going to be the environment next year, but what I got to learn this year is we never measured how precious it is to be together, to interact, to discuss. I don't know if it's the same for you, but sometimes I even forget having seen data that I have not been discussing with someone else, meaning that the memory, the way we fix data is probably because we question this data. So basically next year, I hope it's gonna be all face-to-face, but if not, we have to create this debate. Otherwise the data will just fall in a kind of a box where we don't really make the effort of trying to understand their limitations and maybe their advances. So it's about interactivity. And the second thing is about having fun together because we are all missing it a lot. And if we can be all in Paris next year, we'll spend a lot of time outside, I'm sure also. Basi, what lessons do you think from this year will be helpful next year? I think flexibility. You know, I think as we, there's some unpredictable parts of the, what's going to happen next year, where we are next year, but hopefully in a much better space. But, you know, I think we learned from this year's meeting about how to be flexible, how to do a hybrid meeting. And if we need to have part of the meeting be that way next year, we can, we know how to do it now and can adapt that. And as Solange said, hopefully that, that won't be the case. We can all be together or most of us be together and talk about the data together and see it all together. I think that we all miss that interaction, that human interaction that is so hard to do on Zoom. Well, I certainly hope that we can see each other in Paris next year. We do have to ask my boss if I can go there, but <laughs> will we go from there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so there's so much to talk about, but we are about out of time. And I would like to thank 
all of you for listening. And I will especially would like to thank Dr. Janine Peters for making the time to join us today and work tirelessly for this successful meeting. Thanks to you for having us. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, NJ. Thank you. Thank you to the two of you. And that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast for ILCLC. Stay tuned for the first and third Tuesdays of every month to give us a listen. Also, engage with us on Twitter at ISLC or our website, islc.org. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.